Well, again, good morning. We're going to be looking at Mark chapter 10, verses 32 to 45 this morning. We're making our way through the gospel of Mark. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are called the four gospels, the four good news accounts that talk about the life and teachings of Jesus. They're the stories that are focused on Jesus. Mark's is the shortest gospel, but it's really action-packed and fast-paced. A lot of the stories move from one story to another. And as we'll see here, Mark covers a lot of ground as Jesus is now moving towards Jerusalem, moving towards the cross, and as the intensity in Jesus' ultimate mission and vocation begin to come into focus. So I'm going to read through the passage and then teach through it a bit. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We're going up to Jerusalem, he said. And the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? he asked. And they replied, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your glory. You do not know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. And when the tent heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must first be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. First section, first few verses, we're seeing Jesus predict ultimately his death and resurrection. And there's a neat little pastoral aside here. I, I don't think I'd ever noticed this before. Uh, reading in, in verse uh, 32, it said, what, With Jesus leading the way, the disciples were astonished, and those who followed were afraid. And I thought, astonished and afraid. That is probably the emotional um, flux and flow that we should expect if we're allowing Jesus to lead the way in our lives equal measure astonishment. Jesus is amazing. Look at this. And fear. Where is he leading me? Where is he taking us? This maybe isn't what I signed up for. Maybe it's a fruitful meditation for people there. Jesus says, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed, handed over, killed ultimately. And three days later, I'm going to rise. Now something really important to note here. Jesus in predicting his death in his resurrection, that means that nothing that is going to transpire all the way to the cross takes Jesus by surprise. 
Jesus isn't some kind of doe-eyed victim who's kind of moving towards a vague sense of, I'm going to Jerusalem for some reason, I have a general God vocation, and we'll kind of see what happens. And then he um, is, the cross is kind of thrust upon him, and he's some kind of victim to the powers, powers and principalities that be. There is an element to which Jesus is a victim, but in this declaration, Jesus is making it very clear I know what's ahead of me. I've come for this purpose. I have allowed this to happen. In fact, in John 10, verses 17 and 18, he says, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. He says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. This is the decision that I've made out of eternity past to come to incarnate as a human and to give my life as a ransom for many. Jesus says, I have authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up again, and this command I have received from my Father. Now, how the disciples understand this, we're not sure, but we definitely can see that that none of the disciples are hearing what Jesus is saying literally. Um, It kind of goes over their heads. This is the third time he's talked about going to Jerusalem, having to die, and rising again, and each time they're kind of like, either, no, that's crazy talk, or I don't really get what he's saying when he talks about rising again or on the third day. They're thinking he's going to establish some kind of political overthrow. There's going to be an insurrection. Jesus is now going to establish his kingdom. So this talk of dying and rising, maybe that's like metaphorical for like, we're going to Jerusalem, there's going to be a fight, there's going to be some dark times, but ultimately we're going to come out on top. But we know that the disciples don't really grasp the gravity of what's going on. Because in verse 35, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, say, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Now think about the context for that for a second. Imagine in his humanity, Jesus saying, I'm going to Jerusalem. I understand what lies ahead of me. And it's not pretty. It's, I'm I'm walking into the heart of darkness. And then to have someone who's hearing that around you and saying, Yeah, totally, that's great. Um, But I have stuff I want you to do for me. I mean, this is a sad indictment of kind of the human heart. And we've all been in this situation probably. We've been walking through something. Maybe you come to church. Maybe you you run into someone on the street. And they kind of pick up something around. They're like, hey, how you doing? And And you kind of show some appropriate vulnerability and say, well, it's kind of been a really hard week. And then that person just continues on as if, you didn't, they were just waiting for you to say, I'm fine. Because they had what they were tracking in their head, but where they were going in the conversation. And that can hurt so much. It can hurt so much when we're walking into something, walking through something, and the people around us aren't really listening. You know, Carrie last week talked about the importance of, of listening with care. We eat together, and in eating together, we learn to listen with care. And that's just a huge discipline of love that we all need to be doing. To be listening, not just to what people say, but also to their body language on a Sunday morning in small group, at work, in your family, to really track with people. And I just think that's so heartbreaking that here was this opportunity for the disciples to rally around Jesus and say, I don't really know what this road looks like for you, but I can see you're heartbroken about it, and I want to be there with you. There's just a reflexive impulse to like, okay, whatever, but like, I have some things on my agenda that I want to establish with you, Jesus. 
So I think that gives what they say next even a, a deeper kind of cut in terms of hurt and, and wounding. Let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. That's what James and John want. The sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder, Nick, Jesus nicknames them. Again, they're thinking Jesus is going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to set up a kingdom. He's going to be the king. But every king needs right-hand men. And obviously Jesus is picked 12, so we're going to be right underneath Jesus. But we would like to be elevated above the other 10. So when you're king, could we be like right-hand, left-hand, and then the 10, and then whoever else? We don't really care at that point. But we just want to be one on the right, one on the left. These are places of political power. James and John want power. They're asking for prestige. They're asking for prominence. That's what they're craving as Jesus is moving towards Jerusalem. James and John want power over other people. They see the kingdom of God as a hierarchy. Jesus is at the top. He has authority over everybody. But underneath him are the disciples, and they have authority over other the apostles, they have authority over other disciples. And they're even trying to is there a, a, another level of hierarchy there where there are some apostles who are elevated who get to be in charge and have power over the other apostles? So they're thinking in terms of a power hierarchy. Maybe you've met people like this in your life. I certainly used to operate out of this paradigm. Certainly in the, uh, my early years and early years as a Christian, probably the first, certainly first five to eight years as a Christian, I saw power as something which you want to have because you can exert your influence over other people. And I look back now and, you, you know, people like that, are, that, that emerges from such a tremendous sense of insecurity, immaturity, or in, inadequacy, and it's a compensation for that, for that lack of sense of who they are, and a, and a compensation for a lack of genuine inner authority, so they externalize it. Well, maybe if I have power over other people and I have authority over other people, that will make me feel secure and like I have control and have authority in my own life. Jesus doesn't immediately rebuke them. He, he really asks them a question. He says, oh, you want to be on my right and left in, in my glory. And there's, there's a not-so-subtle tease there in Mark because Jesus is going to Jerusalem. He is going to be crowned. They are going to put a robe on him. He's going to be hailed as king of the Jews, and he is going to have someone on his right and left thrown to king on the cross, right? But that, again, James, they're not thinking that. They're like, yeah, when you come into power, when we overcome, when we get all the, 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 um, the privilege and the wealth that comes from being number one, then I want to sit on your right and left. They don't really know what they're asking. And Jesus says that, and he says, can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink or be baptized with the baptism that I'm going to be baptized with? Cup, baptism, those are two Old Testament symbols. The cup, um, often, throughout the Old Testament, uh, scriptures refer to the cup of God's wrath. Uh, there's a, a bunch of scriptures I just picked out, Isaiah 51, where God, through the prophet Isaiah, says, Wake up, wake up, Israel. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, you who have drained it to its dregs, the goblet that makes men stagger. So this cup of wrath in the Old Testament was seen as a metaphor for 
taking upon yourself to drink the cup of wrath is to drink God's judgment, righteous judgment. God is righteously angry, and you've done something to incur that judgment. And then baptism, Christians tend to think of baptism more like, oh, it's a happy thing. When people give their life to Jesus, they're baptized. But the reason why they are baptized when they give their life to Jesus is because Jesus commanded it. Why did he command it? Because throughout God's story, baptism, immersion in the waters, was always a symbol of death to an old way of life, passing through water so that you could move into a new expression of life under the authority of God. Most prominently seen in the Exodus. You're slaves. I've called you out of slavery. Your identity is a slave. I've taken you through the waters of the Red Sea. I am now leading you. You are now my son, Israel. You're no longer slaves. I'm going to teach you how to walk with head held high to move to and baptism is meant to invoke that symbol. But baptism, moving through the waters to a first century Jew was a scary thing because swirling masses of water symbolized chaos. It symbolized death. And so in scriptures in the Old Testament, 2 Samuel 22.5, the waves of death swirled about me. The torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. Passing through the waters was not seen as something like, oh, this is fun. It was dangerous. And it meant that your life as you know it is coming to an end. But if God, if God is moving you through those waters, that means he's moving you to a new kind of destiny. That's why people, when they give their lives to Jesus, get baptized. It's not that baptism is magical. Paul says in Romans 6, what you're doing is you're enacting this pattern of, I am giving my life to Jesus. Jeff Strong, Jeff Strong with the se- at being at the center of my life, me being an authority, I'm in charge, I'm my own boss, I'm my own Lord, I'm going to try and be my own Savior. That life has come to an end. And when I go under the water, I'm symbolically saying I've died to that way of living. And when I come up out of the water, I'm saying I've been unified with Christ by faith. And now the image-bearing, God-glorifying elements of who God made me to be by the Spirit's work and by the work of the Word of God is going to grow into fruition, and that which is not of God is going to be removed time. But I'm living now with Jesus at the center. I'm learning what that means. That might be confusing, it might be scary, but I'm on that journey. And that's important. It's important to be baptized. And if you are not a Christian and you've been thinking about becoming a Christian, I would strongly recommend that you think about what would it look like for me to get baptized, maybe even this summer. Because it's a public declaration that says to the community of faith that you're a part of, but also to the wider world, I now belong to Jesus. I would like, I'd love to hold a baptism service sometime. The water will be relatively warm in Kootenai Lake. We can't manufacture a baptism service because that has to come from people saying, I want to give my life to Jesus. But we will hold a baptism service in August if there's someone over the next few weeks who says, I want to follow Jesus. I've been tracking, I've been thinking, I've been wondering about it, I've been exploring, but I've been keeping Jesus on the perimeter. Now I want to make Jesus central. And those are powerful, powerful moments. 
And when we baptize, and the reason why we baptize the whole person is because we're giving all of our life to who Jesus is, not just a part. We might not understand the implications. It's kind of like when you stand up there on your wedding day, you're making a vow. You don't understand the complexities of, of what's going to be involved. You don't understand the demands, but you know enough that you say, I love this person, and I'm going to commit the rest of my life to serving and loving them. That's what baptism is. So Jesus pushes back on James and John. You, you think you can drink the cup that I'm going to drink and be baptized with these waters? They're like, totally. And um, he just realizes that they're kind of out of their mind. Jesus then calls together all of the disciples. In verse 42, he says, you know that those who, re- who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. And, and what Jesus is saying is, you know, you guys get it, you live it every day. You know what it's like to be under the authority of godless leaders. Leaders who are and, and it's, a, it's, a softened, it's a softened way of translating it. When the scripture says exercise authority, more literally it reads authority over or over authority or power over or overpower. And there's um, an interesting kind of play there because it's not meant to exercise authority in the way that we might think of exercising godly authority. I'm a king and I make decrees or edicts or I'm in, I'm in government and I pass certain things. It's not meant to reflect good authority. It's very much meant to paint the picture of domineering, brutal, tyrannical rule over people, subjugation. And one of the reasons why we know that is because that word that is uh, used there gets used again in the book of Acts. We talked about this a few weeks ago, the sons of Sceva, these Jewish guys who are trying to cast out demons by invoking the name of Jesus in whom... Paul believes, kind of a second-hand exorcism, and it says that the demon, uh, the person who was demon-possessed, overpowered all of these men. And that's the word there. It doesn't get translated as the demon exercised its authority over the men. It says it overpowered them. But that is what's happening. That's what Jesus is speaking to. You understand how the world thinks about power. It's about power over other people, keeping people down, exploiting people. And then I could just see Jesus looking all of them dead in the eye. Not so with you. That is not the pattern of my kingdom. I forbid it. Not power over. Instead, whoever wants to become great must first be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many over and against this culturally accepted notion that power is good, authority is good, positions of privilege are good, because then you get to exert your will on other people. Jesus upends the paradigm and says, in the kingdom of God, in God's economy of leadership, the great and the glorious will be those who stoop and serve. He even invokes the metaphor of a slave just to hammer home the um, 
on one level, what people might have assumed is, is kind of invoking kind of the shamefulness of being a slave. That is how low you have to go. See, there's no one lower than a slave. That means you don't just serve some people or people that you think are worthy of service. If you're going to be great in my kingdom, you will serve anybody because you will operate out of a posture as if you're a slave. Not in a, oh, I'm worthless. It's not like that at all. It's just to see the inherent worth and goodness and beauty and importance of every other person that you come into contact with. It's esteeming other people better than yourself. So Jesus offers a contrasting expression of authority and power, of greatness and of glory. See, James and John want power because they want power over other people, but Jesus calls his disciples to power, but power for other people, power in service of other people. See, the kingdom of God, when we're walking in the faithfulness of what God has for us, in whatever area of influence, so think about that, your workplace, your family, your relationships, your church, your community service, Authority and greatness, Jesus says, won't look like worldly greatness with just a Christian t-shirt on. It's not like, you, it's pretty much the same pattern, but we just have a pin that says, I'm exploiting for Jesus. That's what makes my leadership distinctive. Jesus says, no, it's not just worldly leadership done in my name. It's a completely different pattern to the world done in my way, my self-sacrificing way, my humble other-giving, other-centered way. Authority and greatness is not going to be secured by simply doing things in Jesus' name, but in doing them in his way. That's why when Jesus says, follow me, it's a summons to a pattern and a lifestyle, what some have called a cruciform lifestyle, learning to die to yourself every day so that others might live. And for leaders, those with authority, those with influence, whether it's meager or much, to still operate out of that view. I don't have power for my benefit. I have power. Power has been entrusted to me for the benefit of those under my authority. I thought about this a lot, this dynamic between power over versus power for people. And we're going to be saying goodbye to the Lewis family this morning. And I've only known Blair for just a little over two years. But Blair just kept coming to mind and I was, as I was teaching and, and reflecting on this passage. Because Blair, to me, is a leader who understands what it means to lead this way. He understands that power is entrusted to him for the benefit of other people. It's been really encouraging for me to see him grow in his capacity to love and serve God through that Jesus-shaped view of servanthood. And I'm excited because I know that as he transitions out of congregational ministry here to whatever God has next for him, he's going to take that posture of leadership with him. And God's going to use that. But it's a way and it's a pattern that is foreign. There's probably a lot of people in this church, unfortunately, who could say just alone in their workplace context, that they've had, they've endured, maybe are enduring life under 
a tyrannical, brutal person, or working with, just with someone who's just simply trying to accrue power out of insecurity and aptitude, um, and just how miserable that makes everything, and just how destructive it is, how it just taints and colors the entire culture in such a negative way. Servanthood, Jesus says, is the path to greatness in the kingdom. Now, I frame that to, to remind us of something. Notice that Jesus says, whoever wants to become great, and I like this about Jesus, Jesus doesn't, Jesus doesn't um, demean ambition. James and John, they're ambitious. They're just ambitious for the wrong things. Jesus is like, it's good to want to be great. God will honor that intention of your heart. If your desire to be great is aligned with God's way and God's purposes and God's heart. If you want to be great in my kingdom, awesome. It's just going to look and express itself differently. Ambition is a good thing, but the expression of that ambition is going to look very different from worldly ambition. You want to be the top dog on your soccer team? Jesus says, that's awesome. But be the top dog and be the captain and be the leader that makes me proud as your master and that serves and loves the other people. You want to be top dog in, uh, you want to be in a position of authority in the government or in your workplace? That's awesome. But do it my way. Don't seek to rule over and boss around and to be in charge. Think about how you can serve through that position of privilege. I was reading about ambition this week, and James K. Smith says this. He says, sometimes ambition gets a bad rap. We connect it to pride and to vainglory. The opposite of ambition, we often think, is humility. But the opposite of ambition is not humility. The opposite of ambition is sloth, passivity, timidity, and complacency. And his question is, I wonder if sometimes we like to comfort ourselves by imagining that the ambitious people are prideful and arrogant. And that way, we, who never risk, never aspire, never launch out into anything challenging, can just wear a moralizing mantle of humility. But, let's call that for what it is, he says, just a thin cover for our lack of courage or even laziness. To be great, Jesus says, is a good thing. But be great my way. Be great God's way by seeking to be a servant. And when you're given power, use that power for other people. Your economic power, your social capital, your intellectual power, your social power, your relational power. Use it for other people. To be great, Jesus says, means that your ambition will be to exercise power for other people instead of exercising your power over other people. James and John come to Jesus because they want glory. Jesus, could I sit on your right? Could my brother sit on your left when you come into your glory? They're chasing after glory. 
And I think the scriptures point to the fact that that hunger for glory is innate in us in human beings. God is the most glorious being. We hunger for God. The, the desire and the aspiration to do and be something great, to achieve glory is a good thing. But the Bible also makes it clear there are two very divergent paths to achieving glory. One is the worldly path where you operate out of self-serving unto death. Meaning other people have to die. You step over other people. You exploit other people. You have to demean other people so that you can rise up and you can become great. Or you travel down Jesus' path, which is not self-serving unto death, it's self-giving unto death. We give of ourselves. Paul says, we pour ourselves out like a drink offering to God so that other people have life. We're willing to absorb the cost so that other people are blessed. The disciple of Jesus called to self-giving for the sake of Jesus and the gospel and to the service of even the lowest of the low is called to follow Jesus. And that means that Jesus' story becomes our story. It becomes our paradigm for discipleship in this world. The glory sought by the sons of Zebedee and the other ten can be gained, but it can only be gained through cross and service. And so, this morning, my challenge to you, to my own heart, comes out of Hebrews 12 too. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's let his ambition become our ambition. Let's seek glory and greatness by becoming servants who use their power for others. Let's lead and love by serving, by laying down our lives in all manner of ways, big and small, in all the dimensions of our relationships. Let's lay down our lives. Let's aspire for a greater glory, an eternal one, not just in Jesus' name, but in his way. Let's pray. This call to servanthood is in so many ways, God, the, the backbone of the Christian life. Grow us into a vision for how we can follow in your footsteps, Jesus. Heal the parts of our hearts that are insecure that cause us to operate out of wanting power over other people who, or who are hungry for the wrong kind of glory. Heal us and change us and fill us with your spirit and renew us and reform us so that we lead like you and the world sees a different pattern of power, a pattern that is restorative and redemptive. God, that would be just awesome. And we just couldn't even imagine what would come from even everyone here going into this week and saying, how can I serve? How can I operate as a slave to all for the honor and glory of Jesus? God, may we take you up on that calling. In your name we pray and ask these things. Amen.